Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking to Paul Mason, author, journalist, filmmaker, about his new book, which is nothing less than a radical defense of the human being. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. Paul came up to Cambridge to record this conversation on Wednesday morning. We're joined also by Helen Thompson. There is an enormous amount in this book. It's about what it means to be human. It's also about what it means to be political, what it means to be on the left, what it means to be a Marxist. We're going to try and cover quite a lot of that. But it's primarily a book about human beings in the new machine age, the age of digital technology. And that's where we started. So a big theme in the book is that we have kind of mystified digital technology and we need to demystify it. Um, you know, we've, we've imbued it with these kind of magical qualities. We often believe that it has powers that we've lost control over. And you want us to remember that these are machines mm-hmm. uh, or tools even. And human beings built these things and we can decide how to use them. So just tell us a bit about how you think we've mystified these things, but also what, what the demystification looks like. Well, I was very struck by Galileo's first ever book on mechanics, where he he writes, I'm surrounded by people who don't know how machines work. At the time, exact contemporaries of Galileo were writing, a machine is a thing for defying nature. And so Galileo just sets to work with his geometry and shows in these 30 pages that indeed a machine is is a thing for channeling the forces of nature. Galileo performs in this book the first demystification act. He says, look, a machine simply transforms energy, energy in, energy out, but in a different form. And I was struck by when reading that by the similarity to what Smith does in The Wealth of Nations. So Smith says, look, machines are not creating any of the value It's the labour that is creating and embodying value in the product. And you can really see that if you go to Kirkcaldy and you think about him in a little workshop watching some early steam engine being made, you can see that it's the people that add the value. So I thought, well, one thing we have to do about computers is to demystify what they are. They are machines. Software is a machine. A Silicon chip is just a machine with a trillion switches that don't move. They neither produce value, nor do they produce energy, nor do they produce information. But they do produce vast amounts of utility by transforming the information that goes into them. Now, if you look at it like that, what are you up against? Weirdly, you're up against a heck of a lot of scientists in rocket science, in cosmology, in subatomic physics, but have tended to indulge in the metaphysical belief that the universe is a computer. Much like a scientist once said, you know, you look at Carpenter looks at the moon and assumes this must be made of wood. Modern science is full of assertion about reality that likens it to a computer. I just thought, no, no, we create them 
we can decide what they do, and we have, at the very least, the right to a debate about our right to control them. But what we don't have is the ability to go to Kakodi and see the demystification that comes with actually finding a site where you can watch the machinery in motion. So part of the mystique of these things is there is something really opaque going on. What Galileo does and what Smith does, but even more Marx, when Marx, I think, perfects the labour theory of value, which is what we're talking about, is you have to use abstraction. Because Marx says in the preface to Das Kapital, um, you can't perform a, a chemical experiment on capitalism. You can't refract it. You can't break it down into its elements. What you have to do is use the power of abstraction to work out what's going on. And I think that what technology is doing is transformative for life on this planet. It is producing, with relatively small amounts of mass and energy, huge amounts of utility. But that's not a mystical process. You have to try and say, well, the economics of it is this. The physics of it is fairly clear. But the social impact is the thing that we haven't begun to understand. Well, you need to therefore apply abstract ideas to what is the social impact. And in part of this book, I spend some time trying to explain what the social and economic impact of the decisive automation of processes is going to be. Uh, And for me, it is that it challenges the the fundamental social relations of capitalism. I was just going to pick you up on the energy question, though, because there's anything, a number of things I could say about the energy question in relation to what you say about how we got from the 70s to now. But if we just stick with the machines, if we're, you know, heading to a future where machines are a fundamental part of it, AI is a fundamental part of it, that is not something that can escape from energy questions. It does have, it seems to me, energy constraints on it, including the fact that the more machines that we have doing the kinds of things that they are now doing, the more electricity that the world needs. How do you see that in relation to the question of, or the hope, I don't know whether it is a hope for you, and I'll push you on that as well, that actually that this direction of travel has got the potential to leave the problem of scarcity behind? Because it seems that scarcity then reappears with the energy question. I mean, I'm a big fan of the Bolshevik sci-fi writer Alexander Bogdanov, and I've come to understand more and more that his novel Red Star is a lesson for us in an age of environmental crisis. Because Bogdanov describes a perfectly achieved communism of full automation and classlessness, which is in crisis because of the environmental limits. That is, the ecosphere of Mars, which is where the sci-fi novel is set, can't support it. Now, that, I think, is a perfect framework for what people like me, who do advocate a form of automated utopian socialism... Yes, we do have to recognise the resource constraints, and they're not just energy, they are raw materials, and they are you know, the ability of the Earth's biosphere to tolerate large populations. We have to say, well, even fully realised, perfected communism would face constraints of the planet. However, there's an interesting thing going on about the way we are doing the next phase of the computer revolution, which is AI and machine learning. The breakthrough, as I understand it, as a lame person who's tried to learn about it, came when they stopped trying to get machines to perform logic, but when they decided to make them do kind of sophisticated equivalent of the card game Snap. That is, you provide it with a stack of circumstances and it has to go Snap. That's the best one for us at this point in the game of chess or Go or flying the aircraft. 
So it's reliant on large amounts of data and therefore large amounts of data storage and therefore energy. And in this sense, I have a hunch that the artificial neural networks, this phase of the AI revolution, maybe in hindsight, we'll see it as a kind of Stalinism, like the first five-year plan, utterly wasteful of resources and utterly reliant on, as it were, firepower. So I think that one wants to remind the AI industry, remind the big data industry, and remind computer scientists that there are these resource constraints and that with ingenuity, presuming we can move to a zero net carbon economy, then everything you do with a piece of silicon and a wire has an environmental cost and therefore you've got to design into it more economy. But doesn't that then actually rely on the almost near faith that technology can actually take away the constraint? That actually it's not a it's not a hard, if you like, constraint generated by the laws of physics about energy. It's something that human ingenuity, real technology, can ultimately surpass. So ultimately, in your version, it's not a constraint. No, I think it is a constraint. And, and you know, in the book, I do this kind of quite brief critique of Marx. And part of it is, of course, that Marx assumed that what you've just said, that there are no technological constraints on human development on the planet. And he was wrong. But I think that technology has the the ability to design in quite a lot of mitigation. But then we have to design human systems that really remind engineers at line one of the code, what are you going to do here to make the society better and more tolerable and a good society? And what are you going to do to save the planet? But does that then mean it depends on the engineers? Because that's, you know, these are fundamentally political questions. But yeah. if, if, in the end, the future of humanity depends on whether the engineers write it at the beginning of the code, it's um, politics depends on them. Well, we're in an age where I am convinced the AI revolution will transform almost everything about the way industrial society works. Because if you think about it, all that's happened so far is a bit like writing a macro. All a a robot in, say, a Nissan factory, it just does copy-paste, copy-paste over and over again, and it copies what a human did. AI, according to the people who I've talked to, to to write this book, will think of its own processes. It will start to give answers to questions we haven't asked. For that reason, it's not politics, it's civil society needs to have a voice in the shaping of this technology. I've rubbed up against this weird world of AI. I've I've walked into faculties at universities that are quite well known for AI, where they've never seen anybody who isn't a scientist for quite a long time. And I've said to them, you know, you do, you know, you do realise that, you know, the classic engineer's problem is that the, you go, how, what is the ethical use of a killer robot? And you go, well, that's a really interesting question. And while you're solving it over there in the law faculty, I'll just build one here and show you how it works. Many of them don't realise that that's what they've been doing. Um, we could talk about Google DeepMind. Google just blew up its own business, effectively, because it started a project with a hospital in London to use big data to do a perfectly brilliant thing, which was to treat kidney disease. And about a year and a half into it, their ethics committee said to them, nothing of what we're doing is ethical. Oops. But the challenge then is, as you say, to introduce these considerations earlier in the process. So the traditional method is, as you describe it, you build the thing and then you ask the question, is it ethical? And you want people to think about that in the process of building it, right? But, 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 they're, how- not, but they're, they're also not the same people who, assuming there is some technological fix to our carbon problems, which I'm 
less convinced than you two perhaps that there is is that 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 is going to happen on the same simultaneous time frame that the engineers dealing with the machines are going to start bringing energy constraints into their considerations from the moment that they start at some point on the timing of these things just not going to work in ways that which then force us as human beings to make political choices about what we prioritize like do we prioritize a future which includes AI in the way we you're t- uh, talking about, or do we prioritise dealing with resource constraints and the future of the planet? I think climate change is a, a known unknown in the sense that we know what we would have to do to solve it and prevent the accelerator effects and the chaos. We don't really know how we're going to create a political coalition around that. You know, David Attenborough made this brilliant video for WWF this week, and he said, look, we know what all the problems are, we just, and we know what the solutions kind of are. It's just about political will. With the problem of agency and the problem of handing over control to machines, I don't think we're at that stage. I've written the book to try and say, many of the crises we're living through politically have their root cause in the hollowing out of the self that took place under neoliberalism. And the product of this has been a mass religion of fatalism uh, that is implicit, both at the average Joe at the bus stop, my life is a mixture of randomness plus DNA. You have this great image that we're all living in an airport, right? Yeah. But the fatalism we're, that you feel we're, we're, when you're in the departure lounge. We're going through, we're not the departure lounge, going through the security at the yeah, airport. We're yeah. just, we're not we even in the departure lounge. The process. So, so I think that the, the, the problem of, of this mass religion of fatalism, it also has its high priests. Go into any airport book stand and you can pull off the shelves, you know, Harari's books, which we are all algorithms. We have lost the power of agency. We've lost the power of, we're doomed. We're, we are just machines. And then you go into the, Humanities faculties and postmodernism is now reinvented with a new life as posthumanism, because, as one of the key posthumanist postmodernists says, Rosie Bridotti, you know, there wasn't much money left in the postmodernism industry, but posthumanism, my goodness, everybody wants to talk about it. So, this is a very bad time to be trying to assert the beginnings of control over not just AI, but over the combined series of technologies that will have begun indeed to transform human life. If you think about smart cities, smart cities are here, they're beginning. The question of who owns the data is being sold in a very different way in left-wing Barcelona than a kind of right-wing city where it's all being done by Accenture and Cisco systems. So the, we're stumbling into the moral and ethical questions of large data systems that, that control aspects of human life. Why I deem that important is because the Enlightenment's quite a temporary phenomenon, you know, and it's also a quite geographically limited phenomenon. And I'm quite worried about its disappearance. But there must be some space between, there can't just be a binary, can there, between sort of the fatalism that you've just described and the techno-optimism. And I know that's a bit simplistic to say that you're in the techno-optimistic camp, but there must be some space in the middle between these things in which we say that human beings have agency over some things and they don't have agency in relation to others, not least the laws of physics as they got in regard to, say, energy. On the energy... as it were, on climate, I'm accepting your proposal that there is a constraint and that we have to work towards it, around it. My project is abundance. My project is decisive automation. Yeah, well, I I always say it's it's pools of relative abundance. You know, if if I walk out of this room with your ballpoint pen, you're not going to call 
the campus police force to chase me back to Cambridge Station. You're not asking me to pay for this cappuccino you bought me. Um, there is a slight pool of abundance on some things. If we achieved that in transport, healthcare, education to post-degree level, well-being services like massage, physiotherapy, dentistry. If we achieved that, you know, I think for many people, it would feel quite abundant. The problem you, you raise is absolutely correct. Energy is limited, the planet is limited, resources are limited, and therefore everything we do with has to be done as a workaround. But yeah, there's in the space between, as a humanist Marxist, what I believe is that, you know, certainly free will it's something that you achieve through struggle you know a peasant in 14th century france doesn't have much free will nor agency which are different concepts but a person in bogdanov's red star sci-fi utopia has a lot of both because they've created the circumstances through struggle so one of the things that connects post-capitalism and, and the new book and one of the sources of optimism is the abundance of information and the ways in which information and ultimately knowledge uh, can be shared or socialised in ways that maybe Marx foresaw. It depends on network effects. It depends on very low marginal costs and so on. And I think most people have this kind of dual experience of this thing, that we're all aware that these amazing things are becoming free and accessible Mm. to us. And we have very little sense of agency over the processes by which that is achieved. And it is part of the mystification of this machinery that these network effects, you know, the fact that we all end up on the same network, produces these extraordinary benefits. And yet at the same time, we feel relatively powerless because do we have a choice? No, we don't have a choice. We're all on Google. See, the airport book version of this is Jeremy Rifkin, that capitalism is abolished because network effects spread and and everything becomes cheap or free. No, instead, what happens is that the whole of society is now, for the last 15 years, we don't write economic history in chunks of 15 years. The whole of society has morphed into a, a kind of... If you think about the way white blood cells attack, you know, viruses, to to continue that analogy, the new thing is the network effect. But the reaction of the system against it is to create huge monopolies that suppress it. And so information, said a a Silicon Valley guru, wants to be free. Uh, But of course, it's not only everywhere in chains, it's everywhere high priced. A music track, this podcast, its natural price should be close to zero. But if it were to go out as an iTunes track and be charged for 99 cents, no one would blink because Apple, with its monopoly, can create prices. So what I'm trying to say is that information technology and the revolution we're living through has not created the fourth industrial revolution. It's created a social relations of production that are designed to suppress a fourth industrial revolution. And that is the contradiction in which we live. Now, that's very much the subject of post-capitalism. Here, I'm trying to actually bring the extra bit to that discussion, which is a little bit more of what do you do about it? What have we begun to do? Break up Facebook. That's now the programme of Elizabeth Warren, presidential candidate. Mandate open source software. That's what Ada Colau, the mayor of Barcelona, is doing. You know, she hired the most anarchist chief technology officer one could imagine. And they just attacked the social relations of monopoly capitalism in Barcelona. So we're starting now to go beyond that. We have to be able to ask ourselves, who is going to do this? Who is going to be the agent of change? And that was what I wanted to try and look at in this book. 
There is one sort of seemingly emerging political choice here. I mean, if you do it in terms of democratic presidential candidates, there's the kind of Green New Deal version of this. And then there's the breaking up of the tech monopolies version of it. They overlap in various ways. But it's starting to look potentially like a political choice, or at least a sense that you're going to have to pick your preference between these two. This isn't all about climate or whatever. But when you see that, I mean, is that a false choice? I mean, do you think politically people are going to have to merge these two? First of all, I think there's a lot of, unfortunately, rhetorical positions being taken by these presidential candidates. In reality, few people around Sanders expect to be able to enact that amazing... You know, the bill, the Green New Deal bill, should be required reading on every undergraduate politics course because it's a piece of rhetorical brilliance. It has no explanation of how any of it's going to happen but as a statement it's on a par with some of the great political statements of of the last 250 years but the idea that we're going to have to choose between that and breaking up Facebook no I, I think that in the end if me and my political allies were to get our way in the United States there would be a congressional majority for doing both but they would be done as it were with the real and grubby and compromise ridden tools to hand. Now remember, Green New Deal is not just about, it's almost hardly about climate. It's about healthcare. It's about welfare. It's about infrastructure. It's about infrastructure. Now, you just have to choose. And one of the unfortunate things about the American left at the moment is that some of them are trapped within this quite metaphysical economic theory called modern monetary theory, which kind of tells you you can you can just invent money and solve everything by doing that. One of its downsides, it avoids the language of choice, which is, as you know, politics 101 is is choices, priorities. And the other downside, which I'm sure you will be aware of, is that many of its environmental answers are very, very weak. You know, like, it assumes that all Americans are going to want cars forever, so we just make them all into electric cars. There's no assumption of, why don't we just change America and make it more like Europe, where you have big mass transit systems? Because that challenges them too far and I've spoken with some of the key people behind that initiative and that is their big fear they want to try and explain to Americans that they can get something similar to socialism without class struggle or indeed without any institutional disruption to this kind of Doris Day post-1945 world the Europeans sit in the rooms with them and they go and, and literally I've seen some of Corbyn's people going what you're you're saying you'll just print money forever uh, and you don't expect the elite to in any way react to this. And you have a theory that n- almost no mainstream e- economists believe in. And you expect the Federal Reserve and, and the economics department at Princeton and Harvard just to stand by and, and go, wow, thank you. It's um, not so- only that, is it's because you can already see, even you know, in the version of modern monetary theory that is QE, and I know that they're not the same thing, mm. is, is that you're already basically destroying the conditions in which you can have pensions yeah. over the long term. So if you're going to go down this road, you're going to accept that you're going to do this even more than we've already d- well, already done it. I was going to make a bigger point, actually, which is I, which I kind of think comes to some of the things that I was going to say to you on the energy side and to some extent on the the building, the coalition side, the political coalition for change, which is this idea of like sacrifice and whether there is a place any longer in our political discourse for saying that if we want things to be better, that we have to lose things that we value. Mm. Because that seems to me one of the problems with sort of the Green New Deal and conflating all these political things together and saying there's all these good things out there, you don't have to choose between them, you don't have to think that achieving anything in politics is difficult, which we all know that it is, but underlying it is the assumption that 
good things can be achieved without losing anything that we already value. Obviously, in Europe, we are far more aware of that because if you look at the green agenda in in Europe, Germany, France, etc., there's far more traction for low growth, zero growth, degrowth. And I am not a degrowther. But I wanted to reframe that question more around moral philosophy because what underlies the assumption of the American left that you can do it all by printing money uh, in an unlimited way is just utilitarianism. In other words, it's the failure to, to challenge the utilitarian basis of American society that I think is underlying a lot of the facileness. And one of the things I've tried to do in this book is to try and make us understand that to solve some of these questions, we, civil society, have to become intelligent clients for moral philosophy, not just for ethics. You know, ethics, yeah, if you're developing a new drug, you need some ethics. You know, but you cannot get on the phone to your HR department at 10 a.m. and go, Janet, please send up some ethics uh, to deal with the problem that we're developing a machine that knows everything. We need to have a moral philosophy. No, that's a very alien thing to modern society. And certainly it's not on the agenda of most people. I'm going to get a top job in, in business by studying moral philosophy. The argument of this book is that you're going to have to because if you want to equip a robot that looks and sounds like a human being with a, a certain degree of freedom, autonomy, whether it would, it's not agency, but it would be autonomy, it's going to have to have a theory of human beings. So this brings us down to the question of We've ended up skating over debates in moral philosophy because we've kind of assumed that the three big ones that are fighting each other, the kind of utilitarianism, Rawlsian sort of social justice theory, the set of natural laws which we must aspire to, and then um, fuck you philosophy of, of, of Friedrich Nietzsche. On any club dance floor, one can see all three at work. But what I wanted to sort of inject into it is an Aristotelian Marxism, which says, no, there is a virtue ethics to be pursued. This is a long answer to your question, but to come back to the question of what needs to be sacrificed, that which needs to be sacrificed, for me, is that which leads to the eudaimonic conclusion of a good society and a good person within it. And I think that both climate change and the challenge of AI and the challenge of automation to solve a lot of the problems we face all must lead us to a debate about that. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. One of the challenges, and it goes back to the demystification project, is when you demystify the technology and you say these are machines and they are machines for human use, it inclines towards the kind of utilitarian approach. And it's the same with money. You demystify money and you say, money is not this special thing. It's a tool for human beings to use. So let's use it to achieve our purposes. And at some point, I'm not saying you need to remystify the human part of it, but there is a danger that these demystification projects just encourage a kind of humanist approach that sees a lot of things that we don't actually 
control in that way as just our tools. Well, the humanism I want to defend is the Marxist humanism that says, yes, we we evolved accidentally into a handful of species that have unique attributes, which are levels of cognition that allow us to imagine, to go on learning throughout our entire lives, to collaborate and to use language, which Marx calls concretized consciousness. That, I think, is established by anthropology and by science, that those are the attributes of the human species, the several of them that came together to form Homo sapiens, or of which Homo sapiens survived. And that means that it is likely... I don't say predestined in the Calvinist sense, but it is likely that through using those tools of imagination, language and consciousness, collaboration in hierarchical societies, we can at some point solve several problems. One of which is, quite quickly, we have to solve the problem of the planet, but the more strategic one is we can overcome scarcity. And if you want to call that teleological, yes, it is a teleological view, but I will defend it as one that is not, in this sense, faith-based. It is based on on observable characteristics of human beings. Now, when one argues from that towards the idea that therefore humans should think of machines as tools for their liberation, not the other way around, that is a logically defensible conclusion from the premise I've just outlined. When we come to design ethics systems into AIs, What I say in the book is the overarching framework for me should be a form of virtue ethics that takes the human race as the community which one is trying to make into a virtuous society. And there is a legitimate debate about what are the virtues of a human being in such a society. In the book, I take a sideswipe at Foucault's notorious uh, piss take of Francis of Sales' Seven Virtues. So Foucault kind of wrote some virtues for the neoliberal era, the non-fascist life. You know, it's a, it's a version of quietism. If you compare them to the Aristotelian virtues, these are all about action. It's quite interesting. And St. Francis of Sales was writing about, well, it's passive because it's the counter-reformation. How do we survive? You know, people are going to lynch us. You know, our religion is in crisis. So express humility. And I think that one wants to be able to say, have a debate among intelligent people, what would the virtues of a good life philosophy be for people who have to survive this transition? But then once you've done that, if we're talking about how do you design an AI, then I think you have to have a a module that is utilitarian that says when you're dealing with the sub problems of that, one has to use some utilitarian calculus. Marx, of course, makes this brilliant critique of utilitarianism, but when he says, look, utilitarianism asks us to measure love against eating an apple, which is, gives me more happiness. Marx says it's inevitable, therefore, that utilitarianism is simply a market philosophy, because there's only one thing that can measure love against an apple, and that is how much do they cost. There's no common yardstick of two types of happiness. And I think that, therefore, utilitarianism breaks down when the machine, we're talking about how does an AI decide things, how does the machine decide between love and eating an apple? It has to appeal to something higher than a set of Benthamite mill era principles. And it has to absolutely, as well, and the book is a war on this, it is a war on Nietzscheanism. Nietzscheanism is popular. It is in the minds of every 
tabloid journalists, that's how they operate, and every Silicon Valley entrepreneur and every person like Trump or Bolsonaro or Duterte or Orban, they are the Nietzscheans of our time. And I want us to go to war against them on behalf of something. I was very struck by the way that you wanted to attack Nietzsche so like remorselessly. <laughs> uh, I didn't think you were always very fair to Nietzsche, but that's another point. But, but the thing that I really thought, though, was is that don't you need a stronger argument against Nietzsche's strongest arguments as opposed to attacking Nietzsche? And what do you think really, they are? That is, is that, that you ultimately want to start with a conception of humanist values. That's what seems to run mm. all the way through the book. And what Nietzsche would say to that is, is that you want a universal set of values bound up with a universal concept of human nature tied to universal human rights and that without God there isn't the foundations for that argument and that he would put your kind of secular humanism into the kinds of people who can't bear the idea of the death of God and need to, need to reinvent God as humanity and that there's no more basis and reason for that than there is for the Christian God. I, I understand how revolutionary that sounded in the 19th century, but in a way, it's always been a rationale for reactionary politics. And probably more overt than you'll find the most Marxists at saying that Marx, to me, is not the break from Enlightenment philosophy. He is the last Enlightenment philosopher. We rarely use this other adjective when we say the word Enlightenment, but we always ought to. It's the Christian Enlightenment. There was an Islamic Enlightenment and a pay tribute in the book. But, you know, Marx, you could say, with some degree of wind-up, is the last Christian Enlightenment philosopher. But I will go back to the argument I just presented. I think there is a biologically grounded case for that kind of humanism. Obviously, Nietzsche doesn't. It works fine, the Nietzschean critique of of Christianity, as long as it's faith-based. But if you're grounded in evolutionary biology and anthropology, then I think you're on at least stronger ground. That doesn't mean, what's the biological basis for universal human rights? Well, that the human species, despite the fact that it has DNA divergences over time, is a species. That's the the basis for it. But don't you have to then get from that to the right to X, the right to Y, the right to Z? You do, you do. And then doesn't that become actually in part a faith-based argument? Well, it could do. Actually, in the book, I don't talk a lot about human rights. I think the Universal Declaration is a, an amazing conquest. But we all know the history of it was, we'll just write down some rules, but don't ask us for the rationale for them. Because if we had to give that, we couldn't write them. And of course, therefore, it makes that document challengeable, as it is going to be this century, by, by, for example, Xi Jinping's form of Marxism, and by the Chinese elite in general, which is anti-universalist, just as the Trump is, just as the Russian nationalists are. But the fact that the rights thing is a construction of human society, I wouldn't necessarily try and say, because there are universal human attributes, one has to have universal human rights. The fact is, we have got a written set of human rights that are universal, and for now, I'd like to defend it. If I wanted to extrapolate from my biologically determinist view of human nature what those rights should be it might not be the ones in the universal declaration but i don't want to unpick the declaration because i think that the unpicking of it is the biggest battle that the next generation is going to have to fight i mean it gets me on to what i was going to ask you about the role of people who are religious Mm. for you in the alliance that you want against 
who you see as the forces that need to be defeated. So in some sense, what you want to call those who are going to be tempted by authoritarianism and fascism. And you say that the left needs an alliance with those who essentially are neoliberal centrists, to use that that language, or at least liberal centrists, if not neoliberal centrists. So when I was reading it, I was was kind of struck by the idea, it just occurred to me that, uh, okay, so he's quite happy for George Osborne to be in his alliance, but he doesn't want Giles Fraser. In his life, so then I was very struck because before you came on, you were saying that you've been on his podcast and it was very interesting. And I and I thought, as you were talking earlier about um, machines, I thought, well, actually, the fact that you want to make moral philosophy so central to your thinking about this is, in some sense, bringing theological questions yeah. into this. So, is there a tension between actually your interest in these theological questions and your absolute commitment, at least as it read to me, to secular humanism that, that might erroneously have led me to the thought that you didn't want Giles Fraser in your coalition? That's Giles Fraser yeah. problem. Right, let me start by uh, try, just trying to restate the thesis of the book, which is that the crisis of neoliberalism, the crisis of, of the economy that no longer delivers to people, has led to the evaporation of, of consent for and belief in democracy and the rule of law. That's what's happening. And that that's not a separate problem from the problem of algorithmic control and the use of massively asymmetric technological power to control us. It's the same problem. All of it is rooted in the effects, we'll call them sociological or psychological, of 30 or 40 years of neoliberal practice on the average human self. That's the the basis of the book's argument. And I say, therefore, the way forward, before we start talking about alliances, political programs, and there is a, a de facto political program in this book of transition beyond capitalism. But before we start talking about that, we must realize that the task is to both personally and politically to create conditions for individuals to try and rediscover the 360 degree human being that neoliberalism tried to destroy. You know, neoliberalism made us into real versions of homo economicus, which Mill and people like Mill only saw, I would argue, as a metaphor. And, and as Foucault says, he says such people are eminently governable. If we're governable by the neoliberals, which we were, we'll be eminently governable by the Trump and Duterte and Orban uh, generation of autocrats, and will eventually be eminently governable by machines controlled and designed in Silicon Valley. So for me, that that's the core argument. What alliance does it lead to? Before I come to Charles Fraser, and let's let's he's a real person. He's actually my neighbour in South London. Um, and, and if and, he's listening to this, we don't we're not meaning anything special. Uh, <laughs> it was the alliteration that I was drawn to when I formulated the thought. A, a social, con- a religious social conservative, but with nevertheless a communitarian outlook. In other words, he he definitely does overlap with me on some things. Now, who do I want in my alliance? First of all, there is in this book a theory of who is the agent of change and that is you know the old marxist theory was it's the proletariat and i overtly said that's wrong but there is an agent of change that is more complicated than the proletariat and that is the everybody who's exploited by capitalism through all its different tentacles you know both through the credit channel both through the exploitation at work channel through the co-creation of brands through domestic labor that is the agent of change and Nevertheless, 
it operates in political system. So right now, in America, the enemy is clear. Hannah Arendt perfectly sums it up in On Totalitarianism. It's an alliance of the elite and the mob. You often hear that thrown around, but the, the sentence where she talks about it is really interesting. She talks about Goebbels. What Goebbels delivered for both the elite and the mob was access to history. That's an amazing phrase. And I think that's what we're seeing with Trump. It's the the evangelical Christians who believe Trump is being attacked by witches right now. Okay, there's, this is what they believe. Their Calvinist predestination craziness in their heads, the white supremacy in their heads, none of it has access to a history where there is progress. So there has to be reaction. Ohio, I visited a uh, an abortion clinic in Ohio and met loads of nutty Christians who wanted to ban abortion from the moment the heartbeat of the fetus is heard. That's no policy. There are no more abortion clinics in the state of Ohio. So that's what they need. This section of the elite that Trump represents and the mob, that's what they want. Access to, to the reversal of history. So this, the alliance we need is everybody who has a, an interest in stopping what the elite and the mob are trying to do to America. And I see a progressive social conservative like Giles Fraser as a potential part of the alliance on some things. You know, I've stood in an earlier phase outside Banks and Canary Wharf where anarchists and trade unionists organising domestic cleaners who were nearly all migrants and many of them were undocumented at the time alongside nuns wearing spuck badges, you know, the, the Society for the Protection of the Unborn Child. If we have to build alliances like that, but then around abortion, break that alliance and build a different alliance, that's politics to me. I said it to, um, to a former Goldman Sachs banker, Luke, if Goldman Sachs wants to fight the form of fascism, the emergent alt-right fascism that we're seeing, let's, let's form a popular front, Dimitrov style, 1935 style, and fight it on the understanding that if we defeat it, we have radically different projects. So one possible question about who are the agents of change is that this is generational at some level. And you, you kind of hint at this at various points. And as you say, people don't write economic history in 15-year cycles, but people live it. Mm. And some people have known almost nothing else. Is there any sense in your mind in which it's possible to conceive of this as a project of a younger generation? I watched the... Extinction Rebellion go past me in Parliament Square yesterday, and I was struck by actually how multi-generational it was. There were, of course, young people aged 20, 25, but there were lots of pensioners and lots of people in between. Now, actually, they all came from a, as it were, rejectionist wings of the Of their generations. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, a lot of the pensioners had dreadlocks. I mean, you know, but, you see, you know, I feel lucky that I knew and experienced the last big proletarian generation of you know male-dominated very solidaristic societies one of the only good things about being 59 is to have seen that collapse and be destroyed and then see the thing that replaced it be destroyed so I know how disorientated those young people are going to be as more and more Trump, Duterte, Bolsonaro and worse and real fascism approaches 
I used to envy the young Oxbridge-educated producers I worked with on Newsnight because they, they lived in the world of certainty in that Blair Brown period. They used to shout at me, Paul, the middle way is best. Across, across you know, what they've been taught on PP, the path of least resistance, you're, what you're talking is bullshit. The, the, they used to say, the housing market will always rise and things like that. And now I don't envy them at all. I really pity them because things are happening on their phones every day that they have no theory to explain. And I should imagine that might be true of some of the students who come through Cambridge. But just like that political generation that was in Cambridge in the 20s that lived in an amazing 1920s, that lived in an amazing um, up period of capitalism, of, of the period of surrealism, the period of the early subatomic physics, they had to live through the 30s. Now, some of them became Soviet spies, fair enough, but they all learned that it couldn't go on and they had to adapt and come up with new strategies and new ideas. One other thing is, exactly because I don't want this generation to reach for the authoritarian and totalitarian left ideologies of the 20th and 19th centuries, is why I'm trying, I wouldn't say single-handedly, but you know, with not much, as it were, um, support, to try and outline a leftism that is not that. So much of what leftism is on offer, to say somebody on that XR demo, is a series of practices without a holistic theory. And of course, what I write in the book can be wrong, it can be open to challenge. You've challenged me on my view of Nietzsche, fair enough. But if we don't raise the level of debate to that, they're left with a series of sporadic practices, while the right... They do have an internationalist worldview, the war on Islam, the war against liberated women. That is the enemy for the next, certainly for the rest of my life. You say that the political values that need to unite the anti-fascist alliance are faith in the rule of law mm. and also to restore the idea that the state is the monopolist of violence and we have to get away from this kind of increasing sort of vigilantism of politics. But there is a third alternative and this would be the Extinction Rebellion one which is you know, their, their first goal is tell us the truth. Mm. So there's the truth. that that You increasingly hear that as a possible unifying value. But the truth and the rule of law are not the same thing. Are you confident that it's the rule of law rather than the truth, which is the unifier? Here? No, I'm not. And I, I don't think I create that hierarchy in the book. The, the thing is that the war on truth is like somebody took Arendt's book on totalitarianism and used it as a manual. And we probably know who that somebody is. I don't attribute the whole of global reality to Vladimir Putin, but we do know that going back to the Okhrana under Tsarism and the KGB under Stalinism and now the GRU, they have very sophisticated techniques of disinformation and they have flooded the world's conversations with bullshit and intolerance. That's what they have done. Now, the thing to fight for is not just the truth, it's the possibility of truth. It's the, the idea that my senses combine with logic. This is what Arendt says. It's not just the distinction between truth and falsehood. It's between true and false uh, that is the problem. That both of these things are possible. The new reactionary movement, these bloggers, including people like Peter Thiel, who is allied to them, the, the founder of PayPal, the neo-reactionaries, their biggest enemy is what they call the cathedral, which is the mainstream media and universities. Because, says their key blogger, Mencius Moldbug, it's the cathedral speaks ex cathedra without, in other words, without justification, gives us a truth that is in fact false. I think that we, we have to absolutely fight for the possibility of truth, verifiable knowledge, academic expertise, yes. 
But then for the, the Extinction Rebellion people, it's in an early phase. It will morph. All these movements morph. They'll have yet to realise what it's like when the cops come in. You know, nefarious actors do things to movements like that that are very easily done. The camp outside St Paul's Cathedral in 2011 was very quickly populated by people who had challenges, some of which was mental illness, and there were numerous incidents of sexual violence. If you wanted to disrupt XR, you know exactly how to do it. Now, they have to live through that, just to say the Black Panthers lived through it, or the civil rights movement. When they mature, political maturity for a movement like that means, okay, well, we sat next to Jeremy Corbyn, and he said he wanted to help us. What does that mean? It means we need to get a law through Parliament and we need to pay for this massive investment in infrastructure and solar power and wind power. And then you're in the world of what you teach in this faculty, which is politics, which is, are we going to go with wind or are we going to go with solar? And if solar, because it's cheaply produced in China, are we going to go with cheap solar panels from China where there are human rights violations or expensive ones from Saxony where there aren't? That's the world they have to be in. And that, as a you know, notorious Corbynista, that is the world. I've seen lots of people from that 2011 generation, the student protest movement, have to go into. They are no experts on fiscal policy. Before, they were just experts at hijacking police cars. The most revolutionary thing to do is a left reformist government, is to take the state, use it for the purpose that it can still be used. You obviously have to democratise it to be in and against it. But yes, it is the state. That's actually the heresy for the autonomous movement, for the peer-to-peer technology people. They believed, and some still believe, that the entire transformation we have to carry out, whether it's environmental or in terms of uh, social justice, is done by creating little islands of sustainability. And I don't. I believe we have to use the state. That's why I call myself a radical social democrat. That is exactly what social democracy is. They believe in those islands connected by Bitcoin. I mean, that's the other thing. You know, Bitcoin is the anti-state project. Well, look, um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general, I don't write about in the book. But certainly, well, you're pretty. You do a bit. I mean, well, you're pretty skeptical. Well, I'm skeptical. Well, you know, or skeptical. Let's say. Look, the, you you believe in the power of the state to well, control money. Um, well, we that's we what it does. I mean, that's we're what, getting that, back that, to that, monetary. That's, that's what the state does. The state does create a, mon- a, a monetary unit, and I think that the total value of Bitcoin has grown, but it, it remains within the gifts of central banks to do something about that. And I, I think at some point in the 21st century, as the global system fragments, we will see central banks start to take quite drastic action on cryptocurrencies. That doesn't mean those cryptocurrencies can't exist, but they would be then crypto. They would be rather more of an underground currency movement. I certainly haven't got any money invested in Bitcoin myself, and I wouldn't advise anybody else to do so. I do think that the blockchain technology that underlies Bitcoin is a potential decentralizer of many things. And of course, in the transition I envisage towards a classless and propertyless society, eventually you don't need a state and you could administer things using a blockchain style technology. And you can use blockchain today to remove power from technology companies. This is what Barcelona has done with its its own citizens' data. They're allowed to revoke permission using a experimental blockchain technology. But I do not see this radical decentralization as the route either to solving climate change. It just won't unless we do some big major state and, and multi-state initiatives. You know, you can't you can't connect North Africa and Europe in a single energy grid from below. 
And when it comes to the state having a monopoly of violence, see, that might rankle with a lot of people, especially people on the left. But the reason I raise it is because you read Hans Mommsen's account of the rise of fascism. What is so telling about that in Germany is the, is the importance of low-level violence and threat. It was the numerous militias. Even in France in 1934, at the time of the big Action Francaise demos, which nearly tipped France into fascism, liberals were being attacked in the streets, modern music was being disrupted with uh, you know, firebombs at, at, at surrealist concerts. People look at Anna Soubry being heckled outside. No, I'm no fan of Anna Soubry, but I would not heckle her outside Parliament in the current period. They look at these, these centrist politicians being heckled and they go, oh, well, it's only Anna Soubry. Sorry, if you are, and I am, someone who's in a public space and is subject to constant attempts to undermine one's credibility, let's put it this way, uh, or damage one's mental health, you do begin to understand what it might have felt like to be a liberal or a surrealist musician or artist in the 1930s. It's no joke to be sticking your neck out anymore. And so, yes, I want the state to have a monopoly of armed force as against the alternative, which is what's happening in America, which is self-policing militias are marching around on white supremacist demos. No, I don't think that's a great advert for democracy. We'll go back to history, because I'm really sympathetic, even though I'm eight years younger than you, to the idea that, you know, you were Generation X, or actually you're a late baby boomer, but we're... I'm early, a late baby, baby boomer. boomer. We're, we're early Generation X. Amazing. And, you, you know, if you have the 70s, as in any sense, part of your formative part of your consciousness, it's very hard... It was very hard to deal with the really glib, facile optimism of the early two thousand, the late nineties, and the early two thousands, and this idea that you know, like the cycles had ended, and you know, house prices and economic growth were were going to um, go on forever. But I think there's another part, at least, that struck me by the time I'd reached some kind of political understanding as an adult, moderate political understanding, I would say, and that is, is that we grew up in the aftermath of the Holocaust and the Gulag and, and Hiroshima. And that seemed to put a, a massive constraint on the possibility of utopian politics of, of any kind. And yet, you've got a very strong historical sensibility, and you're still, despite it all, a utopian. I understand what you're saying when you say is, is that the younger generation are engaging in quite a specific practical political acts, and from your point of view, they don't have a theory that lies behind it. But isn't it in part that they don't have a theory that lies behind it is is because the world that they were bequeathed was one in which the utopian project of any kind had been given up on, except you with your historical sensibility have still held on to the utopian faith. Um, Well, you keep using this word faith, but I would throw (laughs) it back at you because I think the one utopianism that didn't disappear was was Christian humanism. It, it, It was there. It's a respectable utopia because it only led to the conquest of Latin America and the murder of millions of, of indigenous people rather than the Holocaust or the Gulag. But yes, that's, you, you state the problem well. The post-war generation wanted to overthrow utopias because they thought utopian thinking created the Stalinist five-year plan and the Gulag and the Holocaust. And therefore, you, you just live in a world of little and fragmented stories. Well, the problem is that that was fine when the economic system worked, no, the economic system doesn't work, and the left's failure to project a whole—I don't want to call it a utopia, but certainly a holistic answer and a theory of reality and a goal—has left the right possessing all the momentum. And you know, 
The other thing is, one of the big possibly justifiable critiques that is given against the left by liberalism is that the left's obsession with elites leads it towards this kind of conspiracy theory of, you know, at its worst, the anti-Semitic Rothschild mythology. Now, if you look at my writing, the one thing you can't accuse me of is of personalizing this struggle. I'm trying to make it systemic. And the only way to make it the critique systemic is to pose the possibility of a systemic solution. And that's, no, that you call that a utopia if you want. I think the, re- the reason I do so is, is out of practice. I went along for quite a long while. I was a classic Bolshevik Marxist at university. I broke with it. And I broke with it on the basis of the critique given to me by people like Naomi Klein or the early climate camp people, the Invisible Committee of Anarchists who wrote that amazing work, The Coming Insurrection. I accepted their critique. But then when I looked at its practical outcomes, it was continued failure. Because I'd seen Keynesianism and sort of left socialism also continually fail, I think in politics, you've got to be prepared to say if something continuously fails, there's probably something wrong with it. So let's look for something better. And for me, the something better does have a theoretical basis. My entire work here in this book is based around the marks of 1844. I'm sure lots of undergraduates probably even even here will say this is Hegelian claptrap, uh, which is what someone tweeted against me recently. This is all Hegelian claptrap. Well, I'd rather be facing that kind of critique, which I think I can deal with, than the one that you don't have an answer and you're obsessed with a conspiracy theory against an elite. No, I think the the Hegelian claptrap, quote unquote, there is a basis for hope in it. And that is the idea of the transcendence of human limitations through technological and cultural progress. If you want to call that Hegelian claptrap. It's also Marxist claptrap. I'm quite happy to defend that aspect of Marx that is what I call the book. It's a radical defense of the human being and its possibilities. Paul's book is called Clear Bright Future, a radical defense of the human being. It's being published next week. We will tweet the link. We have an extra episode coming out this week on Sunday, which relates to what we've just been talking about. It's partly about Extinction Rebellion. It's directly about the challenge of climate change. It's with David King, who was chief scientific advisor to the Blair and Brown government. He was also Britain's ambassador, climate ambassador, including at the Paris Climate Conference. It's a scary conversation. It's a really important one. You can get it on Sunday. We'll tweet the link to some episodes that relate to some of the themes of today's podcast, including the very first Talking Politics episode, which was with Yuval Noah Harari about post-humanism next week back to british politics my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics ba-ba, ba-ba, ba-ba. <laughs> <laughs>